Hey guys, this is Anand Chimpy from Anantech.com. We are back finally uh, after a month-long hiatus post-MWC for the Anantech podcast episode 18. Uh, joining me, we have Ryan Smith, our senior GPU editor. Hi guys. Um, Brian Klug could not join us today because he is actually working on the finishing touches on his HTC One review. So we decided to split this up into two episodes. Uh, today's episode is going to be focused uh, almost exclusively on PC so- uh, chips, like the, the, the traditional side of the house. Um, and then once Brian is done with the one review here in the next uh, day or two, we will do another episode. Uh, and that, that'll focus on the HTC One, um, the Galaxy S4, and uh, all things wireless, the, the T-Mobile announcement, the, the new iPhone 5, A1428. So all of that is coming. Uh, but we, we know we've been hearing tons of requests for additional podcasts. So we wanted to get this one out now. Um, I want to start off by talking about uh, some site news for a change. Um, so if you haven't noticed, we had a fairly major redesign, um, very controversial, actually. So I, I wanted to, um, you know, actually Ian brought this up before we started the podcast that, hey, it might make sense for, for us to talk about the logic behind it. Um, so I want to take a few minutes just to do that. So the site obviously looks different. Um, we had, we're in an interesting point in the evolution of the site. Um, we currently serve two uh, potentially different um, but but overlapping demographics, right? We have the traditional PC audience um, as well as the the new uh, the new mobile world. Uh, so the smartphones, tablets, mobile SOCs, so on and so forth. Now those two are converging, and they have been for quite a while. Uh, and when we went down this path, um, like about four or five years ago, we kind of assumed that there would be convergence there, that that our PC audience would be interested in the mobile stuff, and some of the mobile folks would be interested in the PC stuff. But we really didn't have an idea of um, how big of an overlap that would be. It turns out that that overlap was pretty decent, um, and and you know we we've been marching towards uh, kind of serving both audiences for quite a while. So we needed a site that was reflective of that. Uh, we needed a site that was reflective of the fact that yes, we we do review more than um, just CPUs and memory and motherboards and stuff like that, and and that was one of the the, the major. Uh, I guess, focuses behind the redesign. At the same point, we wanted to make sure that everyone understood that, yes, we still do review CPUs and motherboards and video cards and things like that. And, and that's why uh, PC Components is one of the four major categories that, that are listed across the top of the site. The other master that we had to serve with this is we are kind of unusual in the industry where we get a lot of traffic. Um, we, we have a, a very broad audience. Um, I think our, our sales folks, the official number they, t- they tout um, in, in their presentations is 15 million unique cookie users per month. Um, that's a lot of readers, and it's unusual for an independent site. We're not owned by a, uh, a big corporation, never had any venture capital or anything like that. Fully independent site. Um, it, it's unusual to have an independent site that's quite that big. And what we find when, when we are this size, it, it does give us access to... Uh, a lot of stuff for review, both on the PC side and, and on the mobile side. But it also uh, allows our sales folks to go in and, and talk to ad agencies versus, you know, just getting ads from, uh, uh, you know, the, the you know, just exclusively direct with manufacturers and, and more specifically, you know, just PC component vendors. You know, we're, we're able to uh, target a, a broader set of advertisers. Um, you know, for example, we've had Jaguar advertise on the site. Um, you know, we've, we've had... Uh, uh, a whole bunch of different types of folks. And when working those agencies, the site has to be reflective of uh, kind of what they're interested in advertising on. It has to look a little more modern, look a little more mainstream, look a little more um, accessible to the ad agency. Uh, at the same time, we our first and foremost goal is to, to serve the readers. And it's important for us to uh, kind of make a site that is functional for you guys, that's easy to read, and, and you know that you want to come to. Uh, so we have all these kind of competing demands on us. And when we went about this redesign, the goal was to make something that was modern, that resonated well with the agencies, um, that still improved readability, right? So one of the problems that we've always had internally is we've hated how narrow our content um, our content column has been. Uh, in the past, um, I, what was the, the widest image we could stick in there? 575, 600 pixels? Uh, you could do 600 if you really tweaked with it and knew what you're doing. Yeah, so so we wanted you know something slightly wider in in the main content area to let us use bigger tables. We love tables and you know let us use larger images and stuff like that. So we wanted to do that. Uh, at the same time, we wanted it to uh, we just wanted to make the site look more modern, look better. 
so this is the the design that we came about with, um, and we launched it. And it's interesting feedback on social media networks uh, and and things like Twitter was was almost universally positive. Uh, in our comment section, a lot of you guys came forward and said, "Hey, this is crap. I can't read anything." And one of the and, and we have been paying attention to all the comments. And, and one of the earliest fixes we did was, yeah, we, we heard the complaint of, hey, that's like this is way too contrasty. Um, so so we went in and we actually swapped the white background color for something that's kind of a very very light gray. Um, and there's some more debate internally that we've been having about uh, whether we still do kind of gray borders around the side to, to kind of frame the site a little better. Um, so that was one of the chief complaints, um, and, and we tried to address that very, very early on. The only complaints that really remain, the, the big ones, the universal ones that remain, um, from my perspective, are you know debate over how to deal with the current um, layout on the front page. With uh, so, so we have the big featured article. We have that two-by-two two area where we have you know the kind of uh, three most recent featured articles and then that one ad spot there. Um, and then below it, we have this list of uh, kind of two columns, right? It's, it's image and then title and then snippet from the article. Now, it's interesting because this is actually going back to our pre-2010 style of design, right? So the pre-2010 style of design was very condensed. Um, it was very uh, image, text, image, text, image, text. Uh, when we did the 2010 redesign, we went to kind of the more uh, the modern blog format, which is, you know, you have your headline, your image, and then, you know, a couple of paragraphs below it. Uh, when we did that redesign, the overwhelming feedback was, hey, information density sucks now. We want the old way back. Um, when we did this one, the the um, biggest complaint was, hey, that's too cluttered. We want the, the, the previous design back. And, and I can see both arguments. Um, and it's interesting, actually, if you go back to the origins of Anantech and, and how we evolved the site, it is almost always cycled between uh, what's now known as the blog format and then the higher density format, which is what we have now. And, and it's almost like clockwork. Every single redesign just toggles between the two. I always viewed it as, hey, this is just how the web evolves, right? We, you know, uh, in, in, there was a period of time where no one wanted to scroll, right? So, so information density was really important. Um, and then everyone was okay with scrolling. So yeah, let's, let's use the blog format. Um, and, and these days, you know, we have this kind of, we're stuck in this weird position where a lot of folks are consuming content on tablets and for them, everything, uh, I don't know, kind of looks better if it looks like a magazine and, and maybe there it's more about, uh, images and, and kind of mixing, uh, the front page up visually. Uh, and then there's, again, the folks who just read on a desktop and for them, maybe, yeah, scrolling is the right way to do it. So it's, I, I don't necessarily know the right solution here. Um, I, I'm not opposed to, to uncluttering that lower area, but um, the more feedback, the better. So I, I don't know. That's still something we're considering. The other major issue that we've had here um, is we've moved to Google Fonts. And interestingly enough, uh, there's a bug with Chrome, the Chrome browser under Windows and Google Fonts. And you effectively, if you're on Chrome and Windows, uh, this doesn't exist for Chrome under OS 10. It doesn't exist for Firefox or IE 10 as well. Um, you, you don't get properly anti-aliased fonts. Compare it to Firefox and IE 10, and you'll notice that the fonts look better there. Or, or compare it to Chrome under OS 10. Um, I, I've looked at it, and we had John, our, our web developer, look at it as well. And he's like, this is just a Chrome bug that's been around. Um, so I'm currently toying with the idea of just using a completely different style sheet um, using not Google web fonts. Uh, for folks who are on Chrome for Windows. Um, I don't like that solution. Like, I would much rather Chrome just not have this problem, but I, that's that's obviously not in my control. Um, and, I, and I believe there's a similar issue for, for um, folks who are using older versions of IE. Uh, we've seen this a little bit with IE7, IE8. So those tweaks are coming. Um, and we've also been doing, like, small tweaks here and there with... Uh, color, font sizes, uh, that kind of stuff. So it, it is evolving. Um, I do appreciate the feedback. We are in a difficult spot where we're, we're trying to, you know, it, it's interesting. So the site design goes live. And uh, just to show you the kind of, you know, multiple masters that we're, we're trying to please here, site design goes live and a lot of the PC component vendors complained. And they were like, hey, this isn't okay. Like we need, um, we need smaller pictures. We need uh, more of a focus on the PC component side of things. And then I was getting calls from folks on in the new world, some of the mobile guys, and they were like, this is ridiculous. Like, you guys need more 
you know, we want dedicated placement for mobile content on the front page. And then, you know, we have all the reader feedback, which is like, I can't read anything, you know, bring back the old design. Um, and it's, it's, it's tough to balance it all, um, but we're trying, um, and, and this will obviously continue going forward. Um, I'm curious, Ryan, you've always been very conservative with our redesigns. What, what are your thoughts? What, what needs to change from your opinion? Um, well, a lot of the things I had a problem with, you ended up fixing there in the first couple of days after the site went live. Uh, the contrast, for example, bringing it down a bit so that we're not looking at black text on a pure white background. I, for one, am a fan of seeing the gray sidebars go back in, but of course, uh, everybody has different opinions on that. Um, otherwise, I'm just happy to have a slightly wider content area. Some of these uh, pictures and graphs we work with, actually especially the pictures because monitors these days, they're all 16 by 9, so being able to post something that is taller than you know the length of your thumb is helpful. I'm just glad on the comment side that our view all comments button actually shows all comments now. That, that makes me really excited. Well, so it's interesting. Yeah, just, just so you guys get um, uh, kind of some behind the scenes here. Whenever my position on anything is, you know, uh, you do the right thing and, and then the readers will follow, your numbers will go up that way. Uh, everyone on the sales side, you know, whenever we do something that reduces potential page count, right? They don't like that. So I remember fighting the battle back then for having a view all comments button and being told that, no, this is not a good idea because, well, because you lose the page views. And, and you know, the, the compromise at the time was, okay, look, 50 seems reasonable. We, at the same time, there were some performance concerns that, hey, look, we were going to load these massive, you know, whatever, thousand comment pages when we do a giveaway or something like that and, and there were there were concerns on that front so so that was where that compromise came from uh now you know obviously i was like this is ridiculous just let's just go full bore on it um but but there's a lot of that sort of feedback um that never gets exposed on the site because honestly it it, it shouldn't matter and and my philosophy is always that look we do the right thing up front and and then you know the numbers will help themselves another thing that's gone back and forth right so i remember in the early days of the site uh, throwing everything on a page was the way to do things. And then things got long enough where people said, hey, maybe you should start paginating this stuff. Uh, and then the blog revolution came along and everyone went back to posting everything on a single page. And I don't necessarily know that I agree with that. I, I, I don't know that that's the easiest way to kind of quickly jump between stuff in an article, especially. I've seen folks do like the uh, like the overlays or whatever to, to kind of make that easier. But I, I still, I don't know. I My encouragement is always you paginate logically. You know, if, if there's a logical break in the argument, a logical break in the article, uh, create a new page break and, and go from there. Um, it's we, we never paginate for the, the sake of driving page numbers up. And, and that's why we always have the uh, single page view or print view. That's that's the, the site redesign um, as it stands today. I, again, I do appreciate all feedback. Um, it's it's hard, you know, the, you, you put it out there and we've been working on this for a really long time. The actual original launch date for this was at the end of last year. Um, but, you know, you, you, you get the negative feedback um, or, or even mixed responses. And even I, like, I had to step away for a bit, just like let it all come in and then just go in and just start addressing all of it. Um, I know we haven't hit everything, but keep the feedback coming. You know, we will keep responding. The difficulty with a lot of this stuff is you might have 10 folks that want six different things and they can't all have what they want. Um, so it's, it's a matter of balancing balancing everyone's needs um, and kind of compiling those that make sense into um, into into bundles that can be deployed and and I don't know it's a struggle I have I always have whenever we launch a, a new site I always have newfound respect for people that have to launch a product um, and and because they they have to deal with the same thing like they, they they launch a product and when the NDA lifts they have 20 odd reviews and they're not always going to be positive um, so anyways that's the that's the site redesign um, uh, Ryan, you and I were were just at uh, NVIDIA's GPU technology conference. Uh, was it like two weeks ago now? No, yeah, not even two weeks ago. It would have been a week and a half ago, but time okay. goes by quickly. Yeah, so we were just there. And, and Ryan, you'd been to, what was this, your third GTC? Uh, yes, it sounds right. I was at GTC 2010, 2012, and 2013. Gotcha. So I went to the first GTC before it was called that, when it was called Envision. And... 
I thought that was a total waste of time, and I, I stopped going. But apparently, I mean, the show had gotten a lot better, and this last round was awesome as far as I was concerned. Like, really cool stuff happened there. Yeah, and videos really gotten their act together. With the first Envision, they didn't really know what to do with it. It was their first professional conference like that. You know, this was back in the day before Fermi, when uh, Tesla would have just been announced. We'd still be on the uh, G80 architecture, etc., so on the tech side, a lot has changed. These products have become a lot more powerful and flexible, and as a result, they can finally attract a wider audience. Uh, academics, of course, you have a ton of academics there who are trying to, well, not unlike gamers, get the best uh, best bang for their buck in terms of uh, performance since they're limited by their grant money. So you've got academics there looking at products, academics giving presentations on what they've designed. Uh, business has really picked up in the last two years. You know, business users are finally coming into the fold, and that uh, and that's huge for NVIDIA. Finally got businesses there. Uh, seismic guys in particular, uh, seismic imaging for oil drilling and whatnot, really love these GPUs. Yeah, like the GPU, I mean, it is, it is you know, we don't really see a ton of heterogeneous compute on, on the consumer side, but in the professional world, like, GPUs have real purpose to them outside of gaming, and it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. When you're talking about something where you'd throw it up on a machine and let it run for a week, you don't have any problem throwing it up on a GPU instead. There's really no issue whether it's real time, uh, just the nature of the workloads. So, yeah, the business world, I mean, GPU compute isn't the $1 billion business yet that uh, NVIDIA wants it to be, but it's finally getting there, and at this rate, it's going rather quickly. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and in the... Uh... In the professional space, in the enterprise space, um, or, or you know, in the HPC space, uh, no one seems to really care, right, about being bound to CUDA and not having necessarily something more open to work with, right? They're just like, hey, if I can get the performance improvements, then I don't care. I'll write in CUDA. I'll write in whatever. And uh, whereas in the consumer side, you know, you need that kind of widespread adoption of of everyone to to uh, really get get support behind something. Yeah, with the HPC space, these guys are really running at a low level. Anyhow, they're not just targeting a specific architecture, they're targeting a specific product. So the fact that they're bound to CUDA doesn't bother them because ultimately they're writing in C, C++, Fortran, anyhow. So whether they have to change a few API calls here and there to deal with CUDA versus whatever other architectures they're using is really not that big of a deal. And that's also why you haven't seen NVIDIA... Uh, how do I put this? NVIDIA hasn't been quite so gung-ho about OpenCL in the last couple of years or so as it was earlier on. Yeah. So we did get some cool announcements, um, GPU announcements out of GTC. Uh, we got a, an updated roadmap. Um, so Ryan, tell us about what's what's coming from NVIDIA. Uh, well, let's see. What's coming from NVIDIA? Uh, of course, NVIDIA gave us an update on their uh, primary GPU roadmap, their uh, desktop, workstation, mobile GPUs. Uh, we've known for some time now what the uh, near future would hold. Uh, NVIDIA basically gives you a N plus 2 look at their GPU lineup. Uh, back when Fermi was announced, we soon thereafter learned about Kepler and then Maxwell. Kepler, of course, came out in 2012. Maxwell will be NVIDIA's 2014 GPU. So this year, NVIDIA announced uh, their GPU to follow that, 2016 or roughly thereabouts, and that's going to be Volta. And what Volta is, is uh, it's going to be obviously an evolution of NVIDIA's existing architectures, uh, but Volta's big thing is that Volta is going to have on-chip stack memory, uh, similar to where Intel is going with uh, Haswell and their uh, GT3e uh, integrated GPU. Yeah, so that's a really big deal, right? Um, the idea is that uh, these chips, as they get bigger and bigger and bigger, um, you know, enabled by Moore's Law, you have tons of compute on die, but you eventually end up being limited by memory bandwidth, right? You need to be able to feel, uh, feed all these thousands of cores. Um, and the problem is you can't keep scaling memory bandwidth by adding more pins to the package and adding more channels of DRAM and just keep running DRAM at a higher and higher frequency you end up becoming board limited, you end up becoming power limited. Uh, so this idea is that you do kind of a, uh, you know, the solution to all problems in the in the computing industry has always been introduce new levels in the cache hierarchy. Uh, so here with Volta, you know, you end up at least at the very, very high end, you do some high speed memory on package, 
using stack DRAM. And then you still have external DRAM uh, that, that obviously runs at a much, much lower frequency at, at much higher latency. Um, but, but all you do is you just go to the, the cache pyramid and you, you start, to, or the memory pyramid, and you start inserting new levels of it. Um, and that's, that's exactly what Volta seems to be. Um, obviously, we don't know much about its architecture. What do we know about Maxwell? So Maxwell is the thing we get. Um, we were supposed to get it this year, right? But we're, we're getting it next year, uh, yeah. according to our latest roadmap. Maxwell originally was a 2013 part, but at the same time, originally Kepler was a 2011 part. Gotcha. Uh, NVIDIA has these tied to TSMC's process nodes. Uh, so if there's a slip on NVIDIA schedule or if there's a slip on TSMC schedule, something gets pushed back. Kepler gets pushed back to 2012. So, of course, Maxwell, a two-year cadence, gets pushed back to 2014. As for so Maxwell, Mac- that likely, likely means that Maxwell is going to be a 20 nanometer part. That's what I would expect, yes. And any sort of future generation architecture parts uh, would be 20 nanometers. I don't think NVIDIA or AMD has had uh, enough foresight to really see how slowly 20 nanometer would play out. So they're sort of stuck waiting on TSMC at this point. Gotcha. So what do we get between now and Maxwell, right? We just get bigger Keplers, more efficient Keplers. And and then what does Maxwell end up looking like? Uh, what we get between then and now, uh, we don't really know what we get. Uh, NVIDIA holds their cards very closely. Uh, certainly if NVIDIA wanted to, the 28 nanometer process has matured a little bit. Uh, so you can hit lower leakages, better power consumption at a given tie size. So NVIDIA could come out with a chip just a little bit larger, a little bit more powerful, and not really push their power budgets around. Uh, we've already seen AMD do something similar with their new Bonaire GPU, uh, which we'll get into later. So yeah, NVIDIA could do that, but we don't know for sure of anything that's in the works other than the fact that there is one new GPU uh, that's specifically being paired in their new uh Kayla CUDA development platform, which is a 2SMX part similar to GK107 right now, that is apparently a new GPU. Okay, yeah, let's talk about Kayla for a second. So this was one of the other big announcements that came out of GTC, um, which was a new kind of product device announcement. Um, obviously, the, the most popular one earlier this year was Project Shield, um, but, but out of GTC, we got something called Kayla. So Kayla, as I understand it, is a ARM-based CUDA development platform, so people can start beginning to develop, or so people can begin to develop um, CUDA applications for ARM in preparation for Logan, which is the first ARM-based SoC that NVIDIA will ship with CUDA support. Is that correct? Exactly. And CUDA ARM development kits aren't new. Uh, what we saw with Kale is actually a modification of an existing kit uh, from a third party called Karma. But the big thing about Kayla is that whereas Karma was using an old Fermi GPU, a Quadro 1000M, if I remember correctly, Kayla, of course, is using a Kepler-based GPU. So the big deal here is, is that that's also what Logan will be using, a ARM CPU paired with a Kepler generation GPU. So Kayla gives developers a chance to target the kind of CUDA features that they will actually see on Logan. So this is um, kind of... I, I don't know. This is really interesting because Kayla itself has, it's just a Tegra 3 CPU, right? So four ARM Cortex-A9s, um, but but it's paired with this very interesting GPU that ends up looking a lot like what's expected in Logan. And didn't NVIDIA say that this is going to be the level of performance you should expect in Logan? Exactly. Based on NVIDIA's guidance, whatever Kayla can do, we are expecting Logan to be able to roughly do. So Kayla is a 2SMX GPU, so that's 384 CUDA cores, and it's clocked at 540 MHz. That clock speed is where we've already seen Tegra GPUs reach, so yeah, Logan is probably going to be a 2SMX GPU, at least in size configuration, a 2SMX GPU with GPU clocked upwards of 500 MHz, if not higher. And and we we, so we did like some napkin math at... um... Actually, it was at an NVIDIA dinner trying to figure out, you know, level of performance and, and uh, you know, overall die size. And, I mean, if, if this is accurate, Logan ends up looking like a beast, right? Didn't you work it out to be something like north of 400 gigaflops? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have those numbers in front of me right now. But, yes, that sounds correct. I and mean, that's like, so to put it in perspective, so iPad 4, PowerVR, SGX 554, MP4. 
that's roughly like it's sub 80 gigaflops. So we're talking about, you know, over 4x the performance of, of the GPU that's in iPad 4 uh, or a compute performance of what's in the iPad 4 um, with, with Logan from the GPU side. Yeah, that sounds correct. I'm just pulling up uh, the numbers I need right now. So yeah, so GeForce GT 640, which is based on the GK 107 GPU, which in terms of configuration is similar to the GPU we're going to see on Kayla, is capable of over 500 gigaflops. Of course, it's also clocked twice as high. So you yeah. factor in the 540 megahertz clock, and yes, we're looking at something as yeah, we're looking at something at about 400 gigaflops. Because that's you're talking about a single SMX, and we're talking about two here, right? No, 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 no. Both have two S. GT six forty has two SMXs also. Oh, okay. I'm just counting for the difference in clock speed. Gotcha. So I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, Nvidia will have to do, you know, either multiple versions or uh, at least multiple die revisions of Logan, right? Because it, we we worked it out. You end up spending something like a hundred millimeter square just on GPU cores if if um, Logan is indeed two SMXs on Kepler. Yeah, we've. If Logan is a 28 nanometer part, which is our expectation right now, you know, the GPU portion of Logan is going to be roughly equivalent to how big a GK107 GPU already is. And GK107 is 116 millimeters squared. So even after you throw out some of the redundant components like the PCI Express controller, uh, the memory controller, etc., you know, yeah, you still basically have to spend 100 millimeters squared on GPU. And then you still have to add in all of the, like, the four Cortex A15s, the fifth Cortex A15 companion core, um, the ISP, like all this other stuff, it ends up being a big chip. So I, I can't, I can't see Logan, you know, not coming in multiple die flavors. Uh, yeah, they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to run a version with two SMXs and a version with one SMX. The version with two XM, two SMXs would look really good in a tablet, for example. I mean, this is the same philosophy behind where Apple goes with the X version of their uh, SOCs, A5X, A6X, etc. You have just a huge GPU on there to drive the kind of high resolutions that tablets hit. Whereas you're probably only going to want one SMX if you're going to attempt to put this in a phone. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, so you were at another GPU-related conference just after that one, um, GDC. What, what was cool there? What was announced there? Ah, yes, GDC, the Game Developers Conference. So unlike uh, GTC, which is strictly a professional uh, GPU conference, GDC, uh, it's mostly there for game developers to show off their wares, uh, interests of the game developers, and of course, a number of sessions on different technologies for game developers basically to seek out some training on how to better use technologies, new ideas for technical development, uh, artistic development, etc. So there is still some GPU news there at GDC. Uh, NVIDIA, of course, everything they really had to show off was the week before at GTC. AMD, however, likes to use GDC to at least bring in the press and uh, sort of deliver uh, a state of the union, as it will, of where they're going for the next uh, half year or so. So on the AMD side of things, uh, it was GDC, so of course they spent a lot of time just talking about their focus on gaming. Uh, AMD's developer relations have just immensely improved over the last year and a half. Uh, AMD's big problem going into 2011 was they had very little money to spend on developer relations, very little money to spend on cross-marketing, and what money they did spend, uh, it's hard to argue it was well spent. So as a result, AMD wasn't really syncing up with developers early enough in order to uh, get a look at the code, uh, Make, in, make suggestions to these guys on how to make it perform better on AMD GPUs, etc., etc. So in 2011, at the end of 2011, uh, one of the th corporate changes AMD made was that they completely reshuffled how uh, developer relations worked. Uh, the division was given uh, much stronger leadership instead of uh, being controlled by... Uh, a loose cabal of uh, AMD employees, and more importantly, it was given a lot more money. So now AMD has had the ability to send out engineers to all these developers, engage in cross-promotion deals, etc., and now they finally have the kind of early access they need to really see the code in time, adjust their drivers in time, give feedback on performance reasons uh, to these developers in time, etc. So their GTC 2013 presentation in turn 
is really a reflection of all of this. Looking at all the games that they've been working with developers on, uh, and it's really a lot of big games. Um, a lot of people are going to focus on the stuff where AMD is offering marketing, you know, Tomb Raider, Crisis 3, Bioshock Infinite. But AMD has also been working with a lot of other developers where there isn't any cross-promotion going on just to help them with the development of their game. So yeah, and we should we should see this show up in you know the end users will will likely see this show up as uh, uh, kind of better performance out of the box with these games without working, waiting for a driver update, right? And and just a better overall experience on AMD hardware when a lot of these kind of key titles launches. Exactly, working with developers means that you're seeing the code early, you're adjusting your drivers early, and you're helping these guys catch performance issues uh, that their own testing may not have turned up. Like, Game developers, depending on which developer you're talking about, aren't really all that great about testing at times, mostly because their uh, corporate masters, in turn, don't put a lot of money or emphasis into uh, really doing performance and compatibility testing on PCs. So having AMD there and having NVIDIA there really helps with that. Got it. Um, now, we, we actually did get some AMD hardware announcements um, out of... Uh, GDC as well. So there was the 7790 that was kind of teased. Um, do we know anything about that? Uh, we know a little bit about it. Uh, being AMD has been working on a multi-GPU Tahiti part for a while now. Uh, the original code name that they gave us all the way back in 2011 at the Tahiti launch was New Zealand. I don't know if this is New Zealand or if that design got scrapped uh, since we never saw an official 7990 at all last year, but they have at least been working on it for a while. Uh, they have shipped other multi-GPU products since then. Fire Pro S10,000 was a multi-GPU product for them that's very similar to the 7990 in design. Uh, so what we do know about the 7990, uh, dual-core Tahiti parts, uh, we open-air cooler, I mean, if you look on our article, three fans, uh, AMD did give us some very strategically selected pictures of it that let us infer a little bit more about it. Uh, the way it has uh, two PCIe uh, PCIe uh, power sockets means that it can't draw more than 375 watts at stock, so that gives us a uh, upper bound to what the TDP should be like for the card. Uh, we also know that they have to be using Volterra uh, VRM circuitry in at least some portion of the card because we have a picture of a Volterra inducer. Now, why do you think it's taken so long for this card to come out? Um, no performance need, or...? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, no, there's definitely a performance need. NVIDIA launched their dual GPU GTX 690 card. We're coming up on a year now. That was launched back in May of 2012, which is a couple months after the Kepler family itself launched. So, as far as single card performance goes, there's been a gap there for a while for AMD. As for why, um, you know, that's a good question. That's the kind of question we'll never really have an answer to until AMD decides to talk about it. But if you look at the power consumption of Tahiti, uh, the TDP on the top Tahiti card, the 77 or the 7970 and then the 7970 Hz edition was 250 watts in both cases. Uh, getting that into a card that draws just 375 watts is difficult. That would require a lot of binning, uh, and that in turn is going to depend on what your yields are like. Only a fraction of chips you're going to get out are going to have the kind of power characteristics necessary to pull that off. At the same time, though, I don't know if maybe AMD just thought maybe it wasn't a market worth pursuing right away. They did allow their partners to go build these dual GPU cards after all. PowerColor, Asus, and a couple other partners have built uh, what we call unofficial official 7990s, which to their name are basically a pair of 7970s on one card. But of course these cards are either special designs, something like the Asus Ares is water-cooled, or something like the Power Color, it just, it, it's got this massive air cooler and it draws 500 watts. So the AMD's official 7990 looks interesting, not necessarily because it's the first time we've seen a dual Tahiti card before, but because of the uh, promise of what it's going to do for power consumption. Uh, Based on what we've seen, it would look like power consumption is going to be significantly lower than what all these unofficial 7990s have done so far. So, so obviously that'll uh, 
now that it's being teased again, I'm, I'm expecting that we'll we'll see it soonish. It, we have to be able to see it soonish because they're already using it to run Battlefield 4. Uh, the yeah, the EA Dice Battlefield 4 presentation in GDC on Tuesday, it was revealed that their uh, Battlefield 4 demos were all being run off 7990s. So there has to be finished or nearly finished cards ready to go. So the other hardware announcement that AMD made there was Radeon Sky. Is that the right name for it? Correct, yes. Radeon Sky, uh, it's AMD's entry into the... Uh, cloud gaming uh, markets uh nvidia of course already has sort of a toehold in here with the geforce grid cards so this is basically amd's alternative that's am amd and nvidia you know and i was saying this to amd it's not that you see amd following nvidia it's that with amd and nvidia both in the same market of gpus having roughly the same feature sets video encoders uh, high GPU performance, virtualization, etc. It's logical for both of them to simply target the same markets for the same opportunities. Uh, everyone, everyone I've talked to, is really gung ho on uh, cloud gaming. Uh, the projections for it to become a multi-billion-dollar-year business, everybody seems to be in agreement with. AMD, Nvidia, game makers, etc. So for AMD, this they would be foolish not to chase after this. And so this so I'm interested in the in the cloud gaming side of things. I mean the the idea here is that you have all this GPU compute in a data center somewhere and then you know customers can sign up, pay a monthly fee, pay a rental fee, whatever and get Crisis 3 streamed to whatever dumb box that they're playing it on. It could be a TV, it could be a really underpowered tablet or phone or whatever. Um I'm curious who these customers end up being. I, I don't see them being the the traditional gaming market. And in my eyes, I view it as this is a way of bringing, uh, let's say, higher quality gaming to hotel rooms. To uh, let's say, you know, it, it becomes a bundled feature in a TV, and and you know, using those things as as upsells. Is that how you see it as well, or or do you really see this displacing some of the traditional gaming market? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, any of the uh, cloud gaming providers will tell you pretty much the same thing. Uh, GTC, I met with uh, a company called G Cluster, which is already an established cloud gaming provider in Europe and who's working on expanding to Japan, North America. And what you said is exactly how they played out their business strategy. Uh, what they want to do is they want to uh, get this into... Or, not necessarily the casual gaming market, but the same sort of broad gaming market that Nintendo's Wii had targeted. Everything from people who are only looking to pick, sit down and pick up a simple game to, you know, a full-fledged Call of Duty-like shooter for the parents when the kids are asleep. And so this is something they want to bring out uh, to people who aren't necessarily going to buy a console. Uh, the advantage of all of these cloud technologies that are being rolled out, they're all based on H.264, which means just about anything can decode them these days. So, you know, uh, latest generation uh, cable TV boxes, for example, can decode H.264. So for someone like uh, Time Warner or Comcast, to use an example here, they could work with a cloud gaming provider to get some servers installed in their network, and then all of a sudden they're able to send out uh, streaming video games to all of their customers just using these, their existing cable boxes. So it's not going to displace uh, hardcore gamers. It's not going to displace the people who wait in line at uh, midnight at a GameStop to buy the latest video game and buy a $600 console or a $7,000 gaming PC. No, those people are always going to want dedicated experiences uh, with good hardware, monitors, But what about the, the folks in between, right? What are the folks who are buying let's say a $1,000 gaming PC, or they're buying an Xbox 360 when it's, or, you know, Xbox Next when it's $300. Um, does, you know, do you see those groups going to cloud gaming as well? Or, or is cloud gaming truly for, for more of expanding the gaming market versus going after existing uh, members of the market? Uh, you know what? I honestly don't know the question, and I don't think I've heard a consistent opinion from uh, the various providers or technology companies either. I mean, certainly it can. I mean, it, it it absolutely can. But I don't know if uh, the, the sort of middle of the market is going to be interested 
in dealing with uh, some of the uh, pitfalls of the technology or what the pricing systems may look like. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think it's, I don't know, for, from my perspective, it seems like gaming in general is going to get really, really uh, broad, right? With you have cloud gaming at one end, you have all the stuff that's happening in the ultra mobile space with smartphone and tablet gaming, uh, and, and obviously the next generation of consoles and the resurgence of PC gaming. Uh, and as everyone kind of comes into their own, then we start to see condo- consolidation versus versus cannibalization very early on. Um, that That's just uh, my kind of gut opinion on it. Um, also on the GPU side, so in between GTC and GDC, you had the chance to review two GPUs, right? So you had uh, Bonaire from AMD, um, and, and then you had a new um, uh, GT650 Ti boost card from NVIDIA. Uh, tell us about them, and and you know they kind of compete in some of the same price points. Uh, just want to know what your recommendations are. Sure thing. So we'll start with the uh, AMD Radeon HD seventy seven ninety. So AMD here is on a uh, sort of two two and a half year cycle with their uh, current iteration of Graphics Core Next products. Uh, of course, last year saw the release of. Their big three GPUs, Tahiti in the 7900 series, Pitcairn in the 7800 series, and Cape Verde in the 7700 series. So now that the 28 nanometer process has matured a little bit, AMD can push out slightly bigger, slightly faster GPUs without significantly increasing their power consumption. And so we've already seen some of these products on the mobile side actually. AMD is mobile first for this wave of products. Uh, so at CES uh, this year, they announced some of this, and now we're finally seeing it come to the desktop. So the first new product we're seeing come to the desktop is a GPU called Bonaire, and it's basically designed to fit in between AMD's existing Cape Verde and Pitcairn GPUs, or to put this in terms of products, uh, power products somewhere between the existing 7700 series and the 7800 series. There's actually a wide gap performance between the 7700 series and the 7800 series, a 7800 series is effectively twice as powerful as a 7700 series card. And so what Bonaire does, bridges that gap, uh, provides uh, more bandwidth, more compute resources, more geometry resources than the existing 7700 series products while not ballooning out the die with a giant memory controller or certain other features that drives up the costs and makes it uh, closer to a Pitcairn level 7800 series product. So the important... And how much is, is the new Bonaire card, the 7790? So the 7790 is $149, and in AMD's lineup, it's intended to fill the hole between the 7700 and 7800 series. The existing 7700 series cards, the 7770, for example, are about $110, and then you get the cheapest 7800 card, the 7850, at about $170, $180. So there's been a large gap in that there for the last six months or so, which NVIDIA basically came in and took for themselves uh, with the GeForce GTX 650 Ti. And the reason that's so important is that when we're talking about the sub $200 market, pricing matters, not just overall pricing, but what cars you can deliver at any given price. These are usually buyers that have a very fixed budget. So for example, if they have $120, they can only spend $120. So $130 card doesn't do them any good. So what you see AMD and NVIDIA doing is to set up cards and card variants at every $10 to try to capture as much money as possible from every little niche of that uh, market. And so how does, a, how does uh, Bonaire do at the, at the $149 price point? Exceptionally well, actually. Uh, it, simply put, it kicks the butt of the GTX 650 Ti, which is a card that was originally launched at $149. Uh, compared to anything that has come before it, uh, you know, it's anywhere up 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% more powerful than uh, some of these cars that have come before it. So it's really in a very unique position because we don't usually get this kind of performance improvement at these prices in the middle of a cycle. So for AMD, they've done a good job here not only building out the GPU and the product, but also getting it out at the right price. And so, so NVIDIA responded with their kind of own, you know, you mentioned this thing's better than a, a 650 Ti. Well, NVIDIA released the 650 Ti Boost, right? And, and tell us about that. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so the GeForce GTX 650 Ti Boost. So I'm not really sure it's fair to characterize it as a response to the 7790 in particular, but more 
of a response to the fact that NVIDIA has their own gap to worry about. With products like the 7790 coming out and pushing the GTX 560 Ti down, NVIDIA has their own gap between this 560 Ti and the GeForce GTX 660. Uh, there's about a $70 gap in there between $130 and $200 that AMD has been soaking up with the 7850 and now the 7790. So the card we looked at, the GTX 650 Ti Boost, is essentially a card that's uh, bridging the gap between the 650 Ti and the 660. Uh, it has almost a complete GK106 GPU, except for the fact that one of the SMXs has been disabled. Uh, clock speeds are very high, equivalent to those of the GTX 660, and it has gobs of memory bandwidth. Now the specific one we looked at is intended more as a competitor for the Radeon HD 7850. Uh, two gigabyte cards here, uh, priced within about ten dollars to seventy-eight fifty, etc. Uh, and these are the cards that are coming out today. Now, in a week or two from now, AMD, Nvidia will be releasing one gigabyte versions of these cards that are intended to go up against the seventy-seven ninety. Uh, we're expecting some performance differences due to the difference in memory. However, until we have a one gigabyte card, I really can't compare the seventy-seven ninety to the 650 Ti Boost. So what I can compare it to is the 7850, which I can say the uh, new 650 Ti Boost in our tests is not quite as fast as 7850. It's about 5% slower, but it's also 10 to $15 cheaper. So you aren't getting equivalent performance, but you aren't paying equivalent prices either. So by pricing it just under the 7850, Nvidia did a good job of realizing their uh, slight performance deficit and still making an attractive card interesting and and what is final price on the 650 ti boost the two gig model the two gig model uh price for the reference versions will be 169 dollars factory overclocked versions will typically go for ten dollars more so 179 dollars gotcha. now the one gigabyte version when it's released is expected at 149 dollars with factory overclocked versions of those at 159 dollars so basically nvidia has a way to get ten dollars from you uh, every step of the way between about $130 and $250. So I'm curious, let's say you're not on a super fixed budget, right? Let's say, you know, you'd like to spend $150, um, but you can spend $170 or $180 if, if need be. What is the what is the price performance? What is the sweet spot between $100 and $200? What's the card? Um, boy, that sweet spot for that, uh, we went over this in the article a bit, uh, my vote right now is to simply get a 2 gigabyte card. Uh, and simply put, we know what's coming down the pipeline in terms of games. Now that we've seen the PS4, we know that these next generation consoles are going to have fairly powerful GPUs, but more importantly, they're going to have lots and lots and lots of fast RAM. We've already seen 1 gigabyte cards get broken by games like Skyrim, and this is a game that came out in 2011, and it only gets worse as time goes on. So, for anything with any kind of longevity, we're going to reach an issue where next generation of games, games that are coming over as ports from these next generation of consoles, are going to be built around having lots of RAM, lots of textures to uh, load, etc. So, the sweet spot for me would be something like a 2GB 7850. It's fairly fast, you can do most games at 1080p at medium to high settings. And more importantly, you've got plenty of RAM for uh, any games that load up lots, lots of textures. Interesting. So 7852 gigs, uh, unless you want to go NVIDIA, and, and actually then the new 650 Ti Boost 2 gig cards would actually be reasonable. Yeah, I mean, the, and that's re exactly what it is. Reasonable alternatives. 7850 and the 650 Ti Boost, uh, one's not really better than the other. One costs a bit more, performs a bit better. One costs a bit less and performs a bit worse. Most buyers should be happy with either one of them. As we went for the title in the article, it's bringing balance to the force. Interesting. Now, what, what? how do the two compare in power consumption? Because that's these days, that's that's more of my concern. Yeah, and that's a reasonable concern. Unfortunately for NVIDIA, it's not in their favor. Uh, with Kepler, NVIDIA really pushed efficiency hard, and it worked. Uh, for most products, the equivalent NVIDIA product consumes uh, a little bit to a lot less power than the equivalent AMD product, but not here with the 650 Ti Boost. 
The 650 Ti Boost is, for all intents and purposes, a 660 with an SMX disabled. And the 660 uh, consumes uh, quite a bit of power compared to the uh, Radeon 7850. Uh, it's, it's not a terrible difference, but this is the first time in this entire generation where we can say that NVIDIA isn't leading the pack in terms of power efficiency. So the 7850, along with being a bit faster, actually pulls a bit less power in most situations. Gotcha. So 7852 gig, that sounds like, you know, if if you're not on an absolute fixed budget, but you do find yourself in this kind of like 200-ish or, or a little bit below um, price range, that that's the card to get. Uh, otherwise, the, the 650 Ti Boost, um, a 2 gig version of that is, is a good buy. Um, and then if you are kind of on a fixed budget, then the new Bonaire card, the 7790 at 149, is, isn't a bad idea either. Yeah, you pretty much go to Newegg and there'll be a card at every $10 that will make sense where it is. That's good. That's that's a good thing to see. Um, so the last major, major, major GPU um, article that we had go live here uh, was something that we've been waiting for for a while. Uh, NVIDIA first floated the idea of distributing a tool to reviewers that would kind of help analyze uh, GPU performance rather than just looking at um, average frame rates. They, they first floated this idea um, back before the Kepler launch last year. Uh, I, I remember talking to NVIDIA um, about a month before Kepler launched, and, and they kind of mentioned that they're working on this tool and their plans were to, to kind of distribute it. Uh, for whatever reason, that took a long time, but, but it's finally out now. Um, and it's called FCAT, and Ryan, you've played around with it. I've played around with it a bit as well. Uh, and it's something that we'll be incorporating into our GPU reviews going forward. Um, so, w- Ryan, take us through what it is and, and tell us your thoughts on it. Okay, so I'll try to do the bridge version here so this podcast doesn't go for another hour. Uh, so an issue that cropped up, and a huge, huge thanks goes to Scott Watson of Tech Report for uh, doing all the legwork to originally find this. Uh, he found an issue where AMD cards uh, in single GPU configurations, so a single 7970 or such, was giving a very uneven frame rate. One frame would take a while to render, the next frame would then come too quickly, and the frame after that uh, may come too late again, etc. We call this, in effect, stuttering, where instead of a smooth image, you get these uneven movements. Uh, So, measuring stuttering has always been something of an issue. Uh, The way Scott did it, and the way a lot of other sites have done it since then, is to use a tool called Fraps. And what Fraps does, in essence, is look at the beginning of the rendering pipeline uh, when an application is first handing off data to Direct3D and count the number of frames that go through there and the time that uh, those frames went through that portion of the rendering pipeline. The issue with that, as it turns out, is that because of uh, various buffers along the way, uh, in specific a buffer called the context queue, what's happening at the start of the rendering pipeline is not what's always happening at the end of the rendering pipeline. That buffer, well, it does exactly what the name implies. It buffers the start of the rendering pipeline from the end of the rendering pipeline, vice versa. So while frames could be going into that buffer evenly, if there was an issue with the card or the drivers, they could be coming out of the buffer and ultimately out of the video card at an uneven pace. And so until now, we haven't been able to take a look at the frames as they are coming out of the card. The only way to really do that is with a high-speed camera, and that's purely visual analysis. You couldn't do any sort of uh, numeric analysis with it. So NVIDIA, uh, with FCAT, has produced a set of tools that allow us to do numeric analysis of frame rates and frame times as they come out of the video card. And what FCAT does is it pretty much uh, is a two-part solution. The first part is uh, an overlay which adds a color strip to the left-hand side of the image. And this color strip changes with every frame. And then at the end of the rendering pipeline, you use a capture card to capture the entire thing and then run it through a tool that looks at the video and uh, analyzes the color strip. And from the color strip, it can tell how much time was between the frames, uh, how much of a frame was actually seen by the end user before the next frame came along, and uh, also compute frame rates from there. 
So and this is really this is really interesting, right? Because Fraps um, does a good job of telling you, uh, kind of focusing on game engine latency, right? It, it tells you everything from uh, you know post user input, right? So you move your mouse, you fire a button, or you you click a button, you launch a rocket, whatever, to when the game engine is done simulating that and is handing it off to the the gpu right correct so so fraps stops there which which is a valid and very interesting metric and it's a good way of uh in the absence of any other tools it's an interesting way of kind of uh assuming you know what's going to happen going forward right it's it's the kind of best bet we've had prior to, to fcap so Fraps ends there, and FCAP picks up literally right where Fraps ends, right? So FCAP inserts itself at the pretty much the exact same part of the pipeline, but now measures latency from that point to the very end, to actual display. Is that accurate? Correct. With FCAP, what we're essentially looking at is a way to easily tell when frames are swapped at the GPU for display. So rather than measuring frames going into the rendering pipeline, we can tell exactly what the user sees which is how much time has transpired between frame flips for display. So what's kind of intriguing here is with the combination of Fraps and FCAD, we almost have something monitoring at the beginning and end of the pipeline. It's not the true beginning, right? Yeah, and that's important. It's not really the beginning. The only way to really monitor the beginning requires the application itself to generate a timestamp telling us uh, what, at what point in the game the simulation time is. Yes. But we can see almost the beginning with Fraps. We can see it as draw calls come out of the application and head over to Direct3D. So, so one, I'm, I'm just excited by the combination of the two, the fact that we have both. Two, it's just a really cool way that NVIDIA's done this, right? And, and you know, there's one of the first concerns that everyone voiced was, uh, hey, NVIDIA built this tool. How do you know it's not just gaming gpus for or gaming benchmarks for in favor of nvidia the way the nature of the tool is actually fairly innocent right it's, all it's, it's doing is is it's just coloring like it has a little strip of color on every single frame it's beautiful and, in its simplicity i i really can't believe nobody had thought of this until nvidia did because it it's not that hard to implement the video analysis although harder isn't too difficult you're really just looking at a color strip yeah, and and so so the the color strip part of it, you know, as far as we can tell, that's not that's not uh, tilting anything in favor of Nvidia. You know, everyone, both AMD and Nvidia hardware, uh, all of their frames get colored the same way. And then the analysis portion of it is literally you feed in an AVI file, and it just it just counts the colors, right? Like it's it's just looking at how many frames existed, how long each color was displayed for, getting frame times, and all that stuff, and and uh that's actually a fairly simple tool as well and and as far as we can tell that's not that's not uh skewing results in favor of nvidia or amd at, yeah. at this point either yeah the extractor analysis tool does has absolutely no clue what it's even looking at it just looks at color strips since we're working from video file it has no clue what the underlying hardware was that generated it and as for the uh overlay tool that that actually within the last day has sort of become a solved problem NVIDIA has made it clear from the start that they want to basically wash their hands of FCAT, get uh, the gaming community and tool authors to take off the work so that there's no question of uh, whether there's anything underhanded going on. There's no question of whether any kind of cheating is going on. And so uh, Unwinder, the developer of MSI Afterburner and EVGA Precision, has just added color strip support to his programs. So in a matter of a couple of days, the entire overlay issue, which is the only component that runs on the system doing the rendering in the first place, has effectively been nullified. Because once his tools uh, actually get released, you won't have to run the NVIDIA overlay tool at all to get your color strips. That's awesome. And this was NVIDIA's, like, this has to be the most altruistic thing I've ever seen NVIDIA do. Um, and I'm not saying, like, NVIDIA's not clubbing baby seals or anything, but, I mean, this is... You can't get more, you know, for the benefit of the community than what NVIDIA did here with FCAT. Um, and, and the fact that they just very clearly uh, and very openly wanted this to be out of their hands. And I, honestly, the original plan was to get the Fraps guys to implement this, right? Yeah, they're still trying to get a hold of the Fraps guys. Uh, they, Among other things, they can't release the source of the overlay tool itself. They're using certain components that are patented and whatnot. So they need somebody else to do the implementation for both that and... Uh, 
so that it's not NVIDIA creating this tool. And so they had been trying to reach out to the Fraps guys, but uh, for whatever reason, nobody's been able to find the Fraps guys. So thankfully, and Winder has stepped up to the plate and is implementing this. Gotcha. But yeah, no, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily call this altruistic entirely. I mean, there is a benefit to NVIDIA releasing this. AMD doesn't do much in the way of frame pacing right now, whereas NVIDIA spent a lot of time uh, working on frame pacing. So in multi-GPU setups, you know, 7990, we now know that it's going to be launched here sometime soon. You're going to compare GTX 690, which has a very advanced frame uh, pacing implementation compared to the 7990, whereas right now AMD doesn't have such implementation. So this tool is going to make NVIDIA look very good. So it's not entirely altruistic, but in the long run it helps everyone, so it can help both reviewers, buyers, and NVIDIA at the same time. That's awesome. So what's interesting is AMD actually came to us and they said, look, we, we want to give you the full story on, on exactly what's going on. Because what, what Scott found, um, what his Fraps testing found, was that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, that you know these AMD GPUs in you know a number of games were kind of very obviously... To some people, um, were, were obviously stuttering, right? They were not delivering frames in a smooth, consistent manner. Uh, and it's really only through his fraps testing that this was exposed to begin with. What was intriguing was, you know, you and I are on the same D call, and they said, "Look, okay, this is this is why that happens." And you know, they committed to fixing it. They said, "Look, by by, uh, you know, we we believe we've addressed it in a lot of the major games and, and now it's a you know something that we're gonna kinda of pay attention to going forward. But prior to Scott's testing, they didn't even test for stuttering, right? Like they had just focused on average frame rates, um, pretty much like everyone else, right? And and then they uh, saw this and so is that is that wrong? Is that what they said? It wasn't necessarily that they weren't testing for stuttering. They weren't doing competitive analysis on stuttering. Yes, that's They right. knew where they had stuttering. They just didn't realize that the issue was their card as opposed to the application operating system stack. Until you can compare an NVIDIA and AMD card, uh, you know, simple scientific methods here, you can't isolate what's causing the stuttering. As it turned out, whereas AMD thought the stuttering was the result of these applications and the operating system, and there wasn't much they could do when they started looking at what NVIDIA cards were doing, oh, hey, NVIDIA cards don't have this problem. And as it turns out, it was in at least uh, some of these cases, it were things AMD was doing wrong, uh, taking too long to clear memory buffers, etc. And so this was, you know, there was the one example that AMD gave us, which was... Uh... You know, in a lot of cases, they would spend just an hour fixing the problem that they didn't realize was their problem to begin with. They would fix it, and not only would it fix the issue, but it would also give them like a significant performance boost, even in the average frame rate cases. Um, and I, I got the sense of frustration during the call that was just like, "Look, I can't believe we've been leaving this performance on the table." Um, but I don't know. Kudos to Scott, man. Like that was a. Uh, it's very rare in this industry where there's something that you know one of us does. Um, within the enthusiast community that uh, yeah, I always like to say that, look, I, I shouldn't be the one finding the problems, right? Like you guys, you know, whatever, Intel is always the gold standard, standard here. Whenever I discover a problem, I go to them and they're usually like, yeah, we already know about this. Um, and, and that's the kind of standard I express to all the other companies that we work with that I shouldn't be the one that finds is the first person to find a problem. Um, if I am, then there, you guys have a major issue here. But every now and then that does happen. Um, and, and Scott, like I said, kudos to him. He, he definitely got this before um, a lot of people who are you know, very focused on this problem were, were able to. Um, and, and it's positively influenced the result, right? Positively influenced the industry as a, as a whole. Um, AMD cards now get better. Their drivers get better. Um, on the multi-GPU side, AMD also committed to getting a fix um, in place for the issues there. So there's a stuttering issue there, but if I remember correctly, AMD's stance is they're simply prioritizing frame latency, right? They're saying that, um, look, these GPUs get inconsistent workloads. They're not necessarily balanced. Our priority is to get all of the frames out as quickly as possible. Now, in some cases, for user experience, that may not necessarily be what you want. You don't necessarily want you know the frames to come as quickly as possible. Rather, you want them to come more consistently. Um, and the AMD commitment there was, hey, we'll get you a driver that, um, or we will release a driver that allows the end user the option to kind of improve frame consistency in, in our multi-GPU setups by July, right? Is that is that the commitment? Correct. Uh, 
July isn't a hard date. I mean, the exact words, I believe, were July time frame. So it'll be ready when it's ready. They expect it in July. These things can always slip. But yes, they're about sometime this summer. They're going to release a driver with the uh, necessary code in it to allow the user to control whether they're in multi-GPU setups, they favor frame consistency or latency. Gotcha. Cool. Um, well, that rounds out our um, very, very GPU-heavy um, episode 18 of the Anontech podcast. As I mentioned before, uh, we're just waiting on Brian to finish up with the one review, and then we will be back in short form here to talk about that versus the Galaxy S4, as well as, well as all the new T-Mobile and iPhone stuff that's happening today. Um, I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, Thank you all for reading the site. And uh, we will talk again very soon.